Hi, everyone. Welcome to Face to Face, a UC Davis podcast featuring students, staff, and faculty innovators. I'm your host, Chancellor Gary May. Stay tuned for my next guest. Hey, Aggies. This week, UC Davis is hosting the Phase 2 Launch Summit of the National Commission on Innovation Competitiveness Frontiers, where some of the nation's key leaders from business, labor, government, and academics have come together to focus on our nation's innovation and competitiveness in the global economy. Today, for this special edition of Face to Face, I'm joined by Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs of the United States, Jed Kolko, and President and CEO of the United States Council on Competitiveness, Deborah Wentz-Smith. Jed, Deborah, thanks for being here with me today on Face to Face. Welcome to UC Davis. Thank you. Thank you. So I typically, in these uh, sessions, we ask questions. I interview the guests. But today, I'd rather just the three of us have a conversation about some of the issues that we're going to be discussing during the, during the meeting today. Um, issues around competitiveness in the global marketplace and how universities and businesses team together for innovation. Um, so let me just start by asking... Why are you here today? Why, why UC Davis, Deborah? Well, we're here at UC Davis because, one, this university has a storied history. You know, it's one of our leading universities in agriculture, animal husbandry. But beyond that, you now have created the capabilities in health, you know, advanced technology across the board. But you also have very innovative models for your partnerships. I mean, we have the Rondavi Wine Institute here, um, what you've done with your infrastructure, Aggie Square, and, and very importantly, how you're educating, you know, the next generation of a diverse student body and inclusivity. So you kind of have all the ingredients of a leading university that's changing and developing a great economy here in um, this part of California and the country. Thank you. Very nice words. Jed, what made you accept the invitation to come? The Council on Competitiveness is bringing together um, leaders across corporate America, uh, academia, government, um, to really think about how all of us connect uh, in order to foster a culture of innovation. Um, this is work that is not only about government, it's not only about universities, um, it's about bringing us all together, um, and that's what we're doing today here at UC Davis. Absolutely. Thank you. So. One of the topics at today's meeting is place-based innovation. And Jed, I know you're going to give a keynote on that topic. Maybe you can tell the audience what does that mean and what does it mean to you and why is it, why is it important? So when we think about place-based innovation, um, from the federal government perspective, um, it tends to mean two things. First um, is directing investment to particular places um, for particular reasons. And the second is investments that help narrow some of the geographic gaps, geographic inequalities um, that uh, persist in this country. Um, so some examples of programs like these um, are the programs that we have at Commerce, uh, like Internet for All, really bringing broadband access to all those parts of America that are underserved or unserved in terms of broadband access, but it's also identifying places that have unique capacity um, for innovation in order to fund things like new tech hubs um, and think about where uh, we can help build up some of our semiconductor manufacturing capabilities. So all these programs uh, are place-based, and there's really been um, a shift in how uh, economists and policymakers think about place um, and take it uh, much more seriously um, than in the past. So, Deborah, that seems to be right in the wheelhouse of the council, right? So tell us about why we th think that's an important topic. 
Well, it is, and in fact, it's it's new language, but it's a back-to-the-future story for the Council on Competitiveness because we were the organization bringing together universities, industry, labor, national labs, who really created the thought, leadership, and action around what was called clusters of innovation. Back in the light, late 90s, we studied various regions of the country to understand what was it about these regions that enabled them to transform their economies and move into the innovation future. San Diego was one of them. And now, of course, today, we do have more clusters in the country around specific areas of excellence or capability. I mean, we know the, the culture of Silicon Valley in terms of startups and venture capital. But we've seen, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, continuing hollowing out of our manufacturing base. Yes, many, a lot of that was 20th and 20th century manufacturing, but we really are committed to building up, unleashing the power and potential of all these regions in our country that have really been kind of left behind, and they haven't been part of the innovation transformation. And not only is it an issue of justice and equity, it's a really hardcore economic and national security issue because we have to have our whole population engaged in this, not just, you know, maybe 10%. But things do occur in places and regions, and that's how we connect them and grow them is really at the heart of place-based innovation. Yeah, and for, for so long, um, over recent decades, especially with um, the rise of the internet and commercialization of the internet, um, there was this sort of incorrect belief that place would stop mattering. Um, there was the book, The Death of Distance. Um, there were all these notions that, you know, you could do anything you wanted anywhere, but guess what? Like, everything still happens somewhere. If anything, geographic inequality has gotten worse, not better. Um, it's not that things have spread out more evenly. Um, it's that things have gotten, if anything, more geographically concentrated. So if anything, place has become even more important despite all these predictions that the internet would make, uh, uh, the end of distance would make cities disappear, none of which came to pass. And of course, the book, you know, the world is flat. Right. The world is not flat at all, as we've seen <laughs> in many, many ways. Same predictions happened for higher ed and, you know, the place-based residential uh, uh, university was also thought to be on its way out. We were glad that it's not. Uh, our university is made up of many students, 40,000 of them, and um, they're a principal part of our audience for face-to-face. -face. Can you talk about the importance of students and in pushing innovation and the envelope for innovation and their creativity and their, their educational experiences? Well, I think the first thing about students, and this is what's so great about being a student but also a lifelong learner, is yes, they're curious. They haven't had their views of things completely molded. And they also have more risk-taking, perhaps, than older people do in their life journey. And so they are really poised to create whatever the future is going to be. And that is why being in an academic environment is, is, is so exciting. Yes, they're learning skills and, and how to learn and knowledge, but it's also what they're going to do with that when they leave. And the, a lot of those ideas and pathways germinate while they're students. And so the energy and excitement, I'm, I'm sure you know that as chancellor, of engaging with your students all the way up through, you know, advanced researchers is very exciting. It is. It's one of the reasons I'm in this job. I love being around those students. Any thoughts, Jet, on that topic? Or Yeah, so many of our ideas come um, 
near the start of our careers. Um, and students, of course, um, will be starting their careers at the cutting edge uh, of whatever field they're in. Um, but I think also um, we know from lots of economic development research that some of the most profound innovations come from bringing together uh, ideas or best practices from different fields um, and connecting, you know, what we know from a certain kind of manufacturing with a certain kind of business process from some other area. And, you know, the world that students experience um, is before we all get siloed um, and split off. Um, you know, now as an economist, you know, there are days when I spend all day long around other economists and economists have their charms, but that is not the way to foster innovation. Um, it is when you are around people um, with ideas from completely different fields and hear about something from outside um, your narrow discipline or what you know well, that's where so many innovations happen. Um, and, you know, that happens um, in student life, when you really are exposed uh, to people thinking about all kinds of different topics. And that's very hard to replicate um, in the professional world. Um, it is, is very hard to recreate, you know, that kind of openness and exploration um, and uh, exposure to lots of different fields that you get um, in student life. Yeah, I would agree. Go ahead. I, I was just going to add that I'm one of the people who thinks the liberal arts education is one of our great strengths. And that it's during those years where you have the opportunity, you know, to, you know, study whatever it is across the liberal arts curriculum and yes, fuse it and understand, you know, how literature and, and how history and all these things, you know, really, yes, shape our world, but, you know, past is prologue. And I am concerned that in many universities, the specialization occurs too soon. And often that's true in, in STEM-intensive universities because there's so much to learn. But I will say that as a student, yes, you can become a STEM leader, and you can go back and learn some of these things, whether it's you know Shakespeare or how, whatever it is. But if you don't take some of the STEM courses as an undergraduate, it's very hard to go back. So sure. this concept of STEAM and how we merge that is very, very important. And I think some of these requirements that may seem old fashioned are very relevant to the future. Yeah, we're very proud of UC Davis' comprehensive nature. We have uh, more than 100 undergraduate degrees and more than 90 professional and, and graduate degrees across four colleges and six professional schools. So students have an opportunity to mix and match the STEM fields and the humanities and social sciences in really creative ways. And many of the students are double majors and ma majors and minors and all sorts of permutations. So I think that's really, really helpful. I want to switch, switch gears and talk about economic development, which uh, Ed, you mentioned very briefly in your remarks just now. Can we um, say a few words about the role of the university, government, and organizations like the council in collaborating for economic growth, both in rural and small town environments like Davis, but also urban environments like Sacramento and other cities where we, we are active? Well, I think there are two important ways that universities can do economic development. I think the one that people probably think of first is around innovation and uh, the development of new discoveries, new techniques, new technologies that then have the potential to be commercialized. But I think the other um, is that increasingly as the economy um, shifts from physical goods to services and 80% uh, of our economy is about services, not physical goods, 
Um, innovation happens where people want to live. And universities often create communities that people want to live in. And so even in addition to the activities of universities that contribute to innovation, universi universities also create um, the kind of social infrastructure that attracts all kinds of innovators um, to live there. And so it's both the uh, essentially uh, supporting the productive side of innovation, but also um, creating the kinds of amenities um, that people are attracted to uh, is all the ways that universities contribute to uh, innovation economic development. Great points. Yeah. And, and I would add to that that universities in many places are the prime employer of a region. And in that sense, they do have both a responsibility and an opportunity to ensure, you know, if there's a new innovation, whether it's in the use of clean energy or in telecom, that they're a leader in that. And then it also, you know, is in the community. I think of Virginia Tech, you know, in Virginia, how they've done that. And, and also Georgia Tech. And, and UC San Diego is, is a wonderful example because I'm sort of a Navy family. I have two sons that went to the Naval Academy and services. But you know, people don't remember how Qualcomm was founded. It's an amazing story. You know, Erwin Jacobs coming from MIT, he's an engineer, he's playing around out there, he goes for the weather, he gets a little contract with the Navy for a little communication thing offshore, link a bit, and the rest is history. But you had to have UC San Diego and all that, you know, technology and leadership to take that to scale, and now you have an economy that's biotech, telecom, et cetera, et cetera. I do think also that universities, particularly the large ones, but really across the country are, in, are accepting their responsibility now to be a beacon for hope in their communities. I, I won't name them, but there's some universities in our country that are very distinguished, and yet the places where they live have never had any socioeconomic advancement. And I think that's something that's that's serious for our country because the universities, the colleges are the the spirit of a place. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, the San Diego example is really powerful. I think UC Davis, we consider ourselves um, among the leaders, uh, world leaders in plant health, animal health, and human health. And we think that's maybe the the place uh, where the next great set of discoveries that move the economy and the nation forward might be. What do you think about that uh, assertion? Do you? Do you, do I, you? I, I believe this back to the point of, you know, the, the innovation often occurs at the intersection, but it is the conversion. And, you know, now we're on the frontiers of, of synthetic biology, immunology, you know, just going through the COVID tra trauma and pandemic, you know, they're going to be more zoomorphic viruses and understanding that and its relationship to humans and that's a that's a huge frontier unfortunately not maybe a pleasant one but you were really taking kind of the core pieces of of convergence with many many applications i mean we can't live without food water and health <laughs> so there, that's right. really the trifecta yeah and these are sectors that i think are a great example of the way that the university both uh, produces, but also creates a community that attracts people. Um, just in my own experience, I lived for uh, about 20 years in San Francisco, often uh, worked in Sacramento, um, and Davis would often be the place where I would buy food. 
um, between the farmer's market, the meat lab, and so on. And so it is probably the community where I would most like to like be a home cook of any place I've ever been. Um, and you know, so again, you know, it's of course both the science and innovation side, but it spills over to create um, a community um, that attracts people and makes it a desirable place to live. Indeed. Uh, you'll be happy to know that the farmer's market and the meat lab are still going strong uh, in Davis. <laughs> so I think a few of our colleagues went to the farmer's market. Did they? Yes, <laughs> Over the weekend? They, they knew about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the future of innovation a little bit. Um, what do you think the society we as Americans should be doing, uh, innovators, students, uh, uh, to sh- shape the future of work and health care and climate change and all these issues that are facing us, uh, just not the near future and the and further out. Are, are the, would, what advice would you give to our community to think about uh, in, in facing these issues? Well, one, I think this generation, and maybe again it's a back to the future story of, of looking back, you know, 40, 50 years, of, have a real sense of responsibility. They are very concerned about the issues you know, climate change and others, but they want to have careers of impact. And so the extent of which, you know, universities have that opportunity for them to have co-ops, to, you know, work on projects that have a, both a social and a technological value, you know, that's going to attract the best and brightest, I think, into these fields. But also, I, I think a challenge is Time. I mean, we talk about the time horizon need to accelerate, but, you know, big transformations don't always happen overnight, and young people have a little bit of impatience. I know even I still do. So how, you know, you understand that continuum of change and, and progress. And, and the other thing that's really exciting today is I do think we're seeing the two bookends of wisdom, young people and people who are at a different stage either finish their careers at the end. And you need both of those for experience and wisdom and thought. And so having you know young students work with some of the more seasoned people is also a good thing, too. I agree. Uh, Jed, what do you think about yeah, the I think future? Yeah, I think there are a few important things to support this culture of innovation. Um, one thing that is essential to understanding innovation is it involves some risk. And for us to have innovation, we need a system where people, you know, have the support and security to take risks, um, whether that means um, building more housing. So uh, there is affordable housing around places where innovation activity is happening. Um, all of the ways in which uh, life can be precarious, you know, takes away the ability to take risks. And so there's a certain you know, sort of set of basic infrastructure um, that we need to support um, that kind of innovation. I think the other um, is to remind folks that you don't need to be a scientist to contribute to innovation. Um, you don't need to be an entrepreneur. Um, you don't need to want to found something and you don't need to have an innovative idea to contribute to innovation. So much of innovation is the translation uh, of ideas into the marketplace, um, into society. And that work um, really needs people who are gifted visually um, and have a way with words and can be able to translate. Um, So to be the person who can 
translate what scientists are doing to the lawyers um, who are uh, negotiating deals, that's an incredibly important role in innovation. Um, and, you know, it's not, it is not only the sort of lone genius um, who is looking to take a risk. Very important point. There's, there's a space and a role for contributions from everyone in innovation. Uh, I agree completely. Could I add one comment to Please. that, um, Chancellor May? The other thing I think is that young, often young people want to work in the startup world. As you said, they, they want to go out with a group of buddies, whatever, and found something. And it's not necessarily at all in tech. I mean, I always say years ago, you know, Starbucks was a great innovator. They somehow got people all over the world to spend, you know, what it, back then, whatever it was, 5 or $6 for a cup of coffee. <laughs> I mean, that was an innovation. Um, but working often for large-scale successful companies is very much part of the innovation journey as well. Because you learn some of the disciplines, the practices, and they're evolving. I mean, they can't function the way they did in the in the 1950s, and I know that for my career. Um, you know, having been in the government for some of my career, starting at the National Science Foundation, all the things I learned there, I still practice in my life today. And you don't get that in a startup. I think there's something to be said for learning how a complex organization operates exactly. and being a part of that. Um, we have a feature in Face to Face which we call the hot seat. So um, don't be scared. It's just uh, we're going to ask you some questions that we're looking for very short answers, one word, one sentence kind of answers. Uh, are we ready? Yeah. Here we go. Uh, what's the most groundbreaking idea you've heard in the last year? I think it's the incredible accomplishment of the laser fusion energy accomplishment at Lawrence Livermore and that there is real talk now about having a functional laser uh, inertial fusion plant in by 2030. That's I mean, one. that's one of the greatest discoveries, accomplishments really in human history. Agree, agree. Jed? I think some of the um, ideas that I've heard this year most excited about um, have to do with our cities um, and what they will look like after the pandemic as more people are working remotely, um, as we have a change in how we're thinking about office space and a need for so much more housing and some of the innovation around what our cities might look like, how we might use our downtowns and how we might get around. That's another good one. That's Thank great. you. Yeah. That's great. Okay. One of the most important innovators of our lifetime, who and why? I'll say two of them and they build on others, of course, back to the point of, I, I would say Jack Kirby and, and Bob Noyce because you know, the, uh, not all the invention, but the commercialization of the integrated circuit, you know, has created our, our digital world. And that's why next generation semiconductors and U.S. leadership in it are essential for our future. So yeah. that was the foundation of uh, the, you know, beyond the information age. You're in my wheelhouse now, so I can't disagree with those choices. <laughs> Jed, what do you think? So I think less in terms of innovators and more in terms of innovations, just because most innovations come from efforts of far more people, many of whom names we don't know. Um, I think for me, some of the most profound innovations have been those that have made it possible um, for women to participate fully in the paid workforce. Um, Labor-saving devices at home, uh, the pill, all these innovations that completely changed um, the calculation of uh, education, um, how to balance uh, work, career, family, um, the, one of the 
biggest sociological changes in the U.S. has been the astounding increase uh, of women in the formal paid workforce over recent decades. Uh, so I think those have been some of the most transformative innovations that I think about. I would agree. Mechanisms for building equity. We're not quite there yet, but we are well, well along the path, much further than we were. Uh, okay, uh, a little more fun. Something new you've learned about Davis since you've been here. Well, what this you set me up beautifully. Are you ready? One of your anthropologists who's working down in Peru has definitively proven through archaeological evidence that in the Paleolithic age, women were also hunters. They were not just gatherers. And that's, so that's a rep, and apparently it's just revolutionizing um, that whole field and our understanding of the role of women. And of course, in Neolithic societies, there was much more egalitarianism. It wasn't until we had complex cities and things we saw this demarcation. So women as hunters, not just gatherers, although we like to gather still. <laughs> that's a great discovery made at UC Davis. Um, so that's a much grander um, new realization about Davis that I've had since getting here 12 hours ago. Um, mine was the Davis Co-op, um, which um, had not in the past been part of my regular um, food stops, um, but will be in the future. That's a good one, too. Um, what, in your mind, is the next big trend in innovation? I would say it's the dematerialization, obviously decarbonization, but the work that's underway to remove our reliance on natural resources that are in scarcity. And the example I would use is not fossil fuels. I would use rare earths, critical materials, you know, we are completely dependent, even though we have our own, um, as is the EU, on the processing in China. I mean, they control 90% of the processing of graphite. We need, beyond lithium, we need synthetic rare earths. And because they're, uh, you know, building block of, again, batteries, everything in this digital world. And so, yes, we're dematerialization, but we still live in a physical world. I, don't, I really don't want to have my human interactions all in cyberspace. But the, the materials frontier is huge. Materials, very important. Thank you. Jed? I think across innovation, uh, thinking about the impact on the environment and natural assets um, will become part of uh, innovations across the board. Um, one of the things that we recently announced uh, out of the statistical agencies of the federal government uh, is a long-term plan to start incorporating natural assets, natural capital, um, into GDP, the most fundamental measure of overall economic activity. Um, and once you start realizing uh, officially the value of nature, that starts to change all the decisions you make um, about what to invest in, how to innovate, what counts as economic growth. Right now in our uh, national accounts, you know, when you chop down a tree to build a house, that new house counts, the lost tree doesn't. That's very um, important. And with this long-term innovation in natural capital accounting, uh, we will count both the house and the tree. And I think we will see that more holistic view of the costs and benefits of our actions reflected in what's valued in terms of innovation. That's fascinating. It so is. you can be a good environmental steward and still contribute to the economy. Yeah. And you would include the oceans, of course. That's right. Yeah. That's right. One last question. This is a little bit personal. Um, what life experience has shaped who you are? Well, I'm a Bronze Age Aegean archaeologist. And so I studied and live and love the Minoan and Mycenaean world, um, you know, about starting about 
1800 before Christ. That's the old language, of course. Um, and it's an incredible period because they were innovators. They completely reshaped the Mediterranean world. They were also conceptual thinkers and artistry. Women had a very powerful role in the known culture, but they created value out of intangible assets. So a lot of their wealth came from selling their beautiful pottery. They got, you know, became a luxury good, and they created a great civilization. And for me, how this influenced me, archaeology is about understanding a culture and civilization with very little information and how you connect the dots, how something unseen with a little bit of evidence enables you to imagine and then understand what really happened. So for competitiveness work, you know, there's no magic bullet. You have to look at all these different systems and how you put them together. So it made me a synthetic thinker. Great answer. Yeah. How about you, Jed? What shaped I think one of the things you. that shaped me, and this is relevant for this whole event about place-based innovation and investments, um, is growing up in a place that had an extraordinary sense of itself. I grew up in Rochester, New York, um, which, uh, you know, the part of the city I grew up in um, was enough of a small town that I grew up thinking that a car horn was a greeting, um, someone <laughs> passing by to say hi. Um, and uh, Rochester for decades had been so dominated by Kodak that that also contributed to a place having such a strong sense of itself uh, economically and culturally. And um, having undergone such change, being tied to the fate uh, of one big company um, that existed in a very changing field. And so I think that led to really a, a whole career of my trying to understand uh, why place is important, um, why things happen where they do and not someplace else, um, why people move, why people stay put. It's interesting how you remember those things. Mm -hmm. The car horn is a greeting of a different type in a different part of New York. <laughs> <laughs> and you know where all exactly. those optic engineers went from Kodak? Um, many to other startups within Rochester. Yeah. Um, some Guess where to, the best ones went? Uh, this tell is a trick us, question. Tell us. They went out to Livermore to work on mm, NASA. They were here. Oh, wow. Yeah. How about that? They took yeah. the best optic engineers in the country to mm. go out and work on the National Ignition Facility. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you know, these are all great answers. This has been a great conversation, very insightful and enlightening. So I'm sure our audience is appreciating it. So I want to thank you both, Deborah and Jed, for joining me today on Face to Face. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chancellor. Thank you for your leadership. I appreciate that. Thanks to everyone for listening. Tune in next time on Face to Face. Go Ags!